Hello again, John Willis, uh, the Deming, uh, Profound Deming Podcast. This is part two of the John Hunter Curious Cat. So um, we're just going to, uh, I just split it a little bit ha- more than halfway. So again, here, I hope you really enjoy it. Let me know if you have any feedback. All right. I really enjoyed this podcast, um, this episode. I learned so much. So I hope you will too. Thank you. That's the sort of history of my career over the last 20 years, which is, you know, helping people automate the building of systems so that they don't have to stick and spend more time on the creativity of the systems that they want to build and less time on the sort of the muck that it takes or the toil that it takes to construct those systems, right? Same right. thing with software development. If you've got, you know, test-driven development or behavior-driven development, all those things, those are pure sort of shift-left Deming-isms at the end of the day that allow you more freedom and more creativity. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, it's uh, um, the I guess uh, the the uh, well this just leads into that the other question. Um, I you know I, I loved your um you, and even your recent I guess you got um, Tom Peters to <laughs> retweet one of your things because oh, I, I, I I've gone back to your blog many times about that idea of uh, you know the the people misquote Deming on uh, on the sort of the data question oh, right right you, you want to explain that to everybody or. Well, one of the, the, it's beautiful. Maybe I'll try to look it up while I have it. Um, the, uh, so let me see, what is the quote? Um, you got Akoff's quote, right? Or, well, yeah. there's several. Um, well, there's Deming's, right? Which is, I got it right down. So it's not like I remember. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so the cool thing is, um, can't manage what you can't measure. The cool thing is, if you want to be pedantic about it, they are 100% correct. Deming said those words. He said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. That's what it was. You can't measure it. Yeah. Now, the problem is that's in the middle of a sentence. And the full right. sentence is, it is wrong to suppose that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. A costly myth that's in the new economics. Right, so the right. funny thing is you can say, Deming said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Because he did. <laughs> now, oh. it is 100% misunderstanding what he said, because if you look at the complete sentence, it says basically the opposite. Um, and that's one of the things I... Deming was very quotable. He said a lot of things, great sort of short quotes. And you can use that very well. You can make a point to a group of people and it can encapsulate sort of this idea. But there's real danger when you try to say, well, here's a quote. This is what it means. Um, So Deming will say, you know, at different times he would or people quote him saying different things about what's the most important part of uh, the management system or something. And it's like, yeah, maybe he said that, but you have to, to know what it really means. You have to pay attention to his whole scope. I, of work. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And you I, just, you learn that. Yeah. yeah Cause you, you said know I think- which things are accurate and which things don't really flow. There's another one, a disputed quote, where I think Deming did say it as a joke, um, but other people say, no, he would never say that. 
uh, about um, if you uh, not the in God we trust. Quote yeah, 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 yeah. In in God we trust. Everyone else uh, must bring data, bring data right? or something like that. The um, now does Deming believe that? No, not in the sense of everything must have data because we just saw the exact right, opposite. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great quote for specific situations when people aren't using data well um, to say, look, where's your data to back up your claim here? Um, and so I think that Deming did say it, but who knows, maybe. Well, you know, yeah, I looked, you you sort of asked in your blog, you know, like I, did, I like to sort of go do a nice, you know, spend a fair amount of time before I'm going to talk to a guest, right? And, you know, you had asked, like, if anybody knows where that kind of, I, I found it in Mary Walton's, um, the Deming Management Method, where all she does is say, in, in God we trust, all others use data. I, it's a subtle right. thing, but... Yeah. Um, but I think it, what you did really well in that blog, and I think you you were quoting uh, Akoff, right? Which was the, the the concept of you know there's the unknown and the unknowable, and it's a manager's job. And I'm summarizing the manager's job to basically figure that out, right? I mean, that's yeah. the point of why that I agree with you. That sort of quote is somewhat of a misquote, although it can be useful, right? Yeah. Well, that, and that's the thing. It's so wonderful doing, in my opinion, once you figure out that you've read a fair amount of Deming right. and Akoff and Schultes, you can trust that, you know, if they say something, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to it, even if it doesn't seem right to me on first blush, because I've established in my sort of mental model that this person knows a heck of a lot about management. If they believe something that's different than me, I should pay attention, not just assume that they're and open up the book. Right. Like, I mean, you know, I was just writing something about 14 points related to cyber. Cause one of the areas I cover a lot is in cyber and all the sort of cyber terrorism, cyber attacks. And, and I was trying to relate that to 14 points. And so I purposely, you know, you, you can read a million blogs about Deming's 14 points. Right. right. And, and that's good. Right. That to the point we made yeah. earlier, like that it, it evolves. Right. And this is good stuff. But but I wanted to go back and reread, um, you know, out of the crisis to make sure I really tried to understand what he was saying in 1980 or 1982 when the book was published. And one of the things I've learned about Deming is, he, I guess, you know, like to say he's he was sort of I mean, obviously, it sounds like he didn't suffer fools. He was sort of curt in his words. I, I, I felt like in what I've learned about him is like he used a word that meant something. And if you didn't get it, he didn't sort of step back and say, oh, you know, let me explain it to you, poor Johnny. Um, you know, he he seemed to be always sort of moving forward. And like you had to and, and I'll give you an example of something that like like really turned the light bulb on for me. He was asked at one point by uh, somebody who was interviewed, which said. You're talking about Japan, and he said there was only one person in Japan with profound knowledge, and that sounds very egotistical, right? Like, my goodness, like, really, is that what he said? But I think if you understand Dr. Deming, like, he basically thought of that more as you know, not you know, like what he meant is there's a body of work that you had to understand to help improve to create those improvement and changes in Japan. And, you know, and I think he just didn't bother to say, oh, by the way, that is system of profound knowledge or that is, 
the aggregate of everybody from pragmatism, you know, all the way up to Schuert to uh, theory of knowledge. It's it's variation all through the years. Obviously, Schuert through. Yeah, I get, you get my point. I don't think he would stop and say, "Okay." He just said, "You know, there was only one person who you know understood pr- profound or had profound knowledge." And it wasn't like he was saying I was the smartest person in Japan. He was saying there's a body of work that had to be applied. Am I making sense? To me, you are. I bet you a lot of people won't understand it. I think one of the uh, things that's true is Deming didn't have the same social niceties that we expect today, where you sort of congratulate everyone on uh, anything they're able to do and you don't criticize them because that might, you know, make them unhappy or something. Now, there's a very fine line. Well, not fine line, but there's a very tricky line between um, having high expectations for people and uh, not being cruel to people. The From the people that I knew that dealt with Deming a lot in outside of those seminars is he was very challenging and difficult to executives. He expected them to do what I was talking about a long time ago, which is you are the leader of an organization with, you know, often tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who rely on you. A bunch of people like you created the Great Depression with their stupid egotistical behavior. And you in the 1970s and 80s, are creating these organizations that have to fire tens of thousands of people because of the way you behaved. And I am not going to sit here and just uh, not criticize you because you have power. And so you shouldn't, you're not used to being criticized. On the other hand, if he was talking to people who were doing the work, he was not very critical at all. Um, One of the things you had asked a long time ago about, Uh, sort of if there was an aha moment. And for me, there wasn't. It was all sorts of things. But if there's one piece that probably is the closest to an aha moment, it is, I mentioned before, my dad died. And after he died, I went to a bunch of these conferences and things over the years with a lot of people that worked with him. And also in Madison, they set up the Madison uh, Area Quality Improvement Network. And then they uh, had an annual Hunter conference. And like Deming spoke at the first one, oh, wow. Wow. Uh, Joyner spoke at them often, um, and Peter Schultes spoke at all of them. That's really how I started to know Peter Schultes. Okay. Um, but anyway, the, at those conferences and then through the website and other things, I constantly had people tell me how much of a difference my father made in their life. Not in, you know, oh, now I'm rich. I used to be poor. Right, right, right. I was treated as a human being. I don't have this uh, skill or trait or whatever, but my dad did, and I think Deming did, which Mm -hmm. is he could deal with anyone. He could deal with the president of any company, and he could deal with the people on the line um, at any uh, factory or uh, coding things or uh, sitting in a uh, uh, bank uh, teller. And that is something that very few people can do well. Connect with those people, make them feel respected, right. make them feel like they are valuable 
And the thing is that it's funny because the what you see on the tapes and the uh, everything with Deming, you see him being very cantankerous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he had this other thing that uh, my dad had too, which is they would connect with these individuals and they didn't talk down to them. They okay. didn't, uh, you know, they really connected with them as people and they connected with something that Deming talks about a lot that almost no one else does, which is things like, you know, taking pride in your work, right. uh, joy in work. And at not in some sort of simple way. It's yeah. not what they're talking about is not, you know, how am I happy this Friday? It is how am I happy with what I spent my last 20 years doing? Right. And that, you know, when you say it's not an aha moment, but I saw how powerful a force this was in people's lives. You know, people who, who I think most people in the United States today go to work and basically don't like their job and don't take much pride in their job. And that's just the way it is. And it's the way it's been for the last 20 years. Well, I talked to a bunch of people over, you know, years that were like, that's the way it was for me. Then I dealt with your dad. And now I have a life that, you know, it's not perfect and yeah, roses but, every yeah, day, yeah, yeah, yeah. but where I am proud of what I yeah. do every day. I, I use my brain at work. You know, many of them would transition from the work they were doing into more responsibility. And so they also were making more money. But it yeah. is it's also the way that I grew up. I mean, I just didn't understand the concept that most people have. I mean, my dad had a job where he did what um, he wanted to be doing. I would, as a kid, we would, it just didn't happen very often, but when we were on vacation, we would sometimes wrap in uh, a <laughs> factory visit. My now, kids are going to be like you, dude. Uh, I forced my kids to go to Toyota and Mazda when we made a Japan trip. So, you know, my, my yeah, kids, well, and it, 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 uh, it's, you know, it's a very few events of it, but it makes a difference. You see, and it, it wasn't because he, uh, you see a lot of people who are like, you have to separate life and work. Yeah, yeah. And it isn't that. And it isn't that you have to work uh, all the time. He did not add on this trip to the factory because his boss was making yeah, him no, I, made I him miserable. Totally get it. I mean, he, that's, yeah. You're, you're yeah, describing he did my life, it, right? Like, right. I'm in Japan. There ain't no way I'm not going to the Toyota plant. Right. And, you know, but it was, you know, a two week trip and one day, you know, one day in Mazda. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, that's the way, you know, I've been very much independent and been able to do that with my, you know, I, I, I they don't do it anymore, but for years I, I would be invited to Georgia tech. I'm here in Atlanta and, and I'd lecture to these, um, to the seniors in this, there was a, it was like a networking internet infrastructure class and, and I would just tell them, you know, here's the deal, man. Like, you're all going to rush out of here. You're going to get jobs and you get offers. And But, like, you, you have to find a job that where nine out of ten days, they'll never be ten out of ten, but nine out of ten, right. you wake up with a smile on your face. If you can find that, I tell my boys that. I tell anybody who's willing to listen to me, you know, like, that's the sort of magic. Because then, to your point, when you go on a trip and you visit the toilet plant, that's not work. You know, we went we went to restaurants, we did all sorts of other fun stuff and temples and all that stuff. But to me, you know, that wasn't like, oh, you know, I gotta go back and report to the people I work with. No, I, I totally get that. 
Do you got some more time for a couple more questions or? Are we yeah, sure. yep, you said you like going long. We can break that. Well, I just, I, yeah, I have a lot. I, I really like this stuff. <laughs> oh, me too. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, the, the, I guess the other thing I, I like that you um, were talking about, like the evolution of these learnings. So you would, um, and I've, I've read some of your stuff in the past about, about uh, this, the, you know, you added like the um, two more deadly sins. <laughs> right. And, and I, I think, you know, I, you know, I definitely like the IP, like intellectual property, like unquestioned. So you added that as like sort of nine. Right. And then, you know, eight was the excessive payment. I, you know, like we probably don't have enough time to go into the parts I agree and the parts I right. sort of still struggle with because I've run software companies. And, I, you know, the one area I don't fully agree with Dr. Deming is. When I got top salespeople making like tons of money, bringing in sales. Yeah, like, the, I heard you talking about that on another one of your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I can give you a short bit on my piece. Okay. The idea, I think, is that I wrote a blog post on the idea that what you're able to do in management improvement is heavily dependent on what the current state of the organization is. So you can't just magically do any old thing and think that it's all going to work. Like if you have a completely dysfunctional organization, as many do, and you get rid of performance appraisals, that might be one of the few things that's holding some of the most abusive behavior back. So it's not that you, it's not that you can take your screwed up system, get rid of performance appraisals and things are better. It is though that there are many ways performance appraisals are bad. And if your system is improving, it can create. Yeah, some I, but to be clear, I'm totally against performance appraisals. The area yeah. I, I sort of get squirrely with is compensation. Well, that's so what I was going to say is it depends on your current system. I would say that one of the reasons why sales incentives work so well is that no matter how, what kind of system you have a good one, a bad one, whatever, if you incent good salespeople, people who can get people to sign checks, um, they will probably be able to increase sales. So where I think the idea comes from that uh, in, it, create, it can create all sorts of problems. Now, if you have a management system that is strong in many ways, it might be that you can keep all or some incentives for uh, exceptional salespeople in place. But my belief would be that if I improve the system, I shouldn't have to use uh, sales incentives targeted at a few uh, really good salespeople to make things better. And if you don't make the change, there are usually some bad consequences, even if they're not in this year's uh, statements, which is if you have good salespeople and you don't have sales quotas and sales incentives, they help the other salespeople design systems that will help them sell. Well, if they're incented to keep themselves as a star and the other salespeople as non-stars, they're not going to be incentivized to do that. Now, you need to be pretty far along usually before that's going to factor in. So that's one piece. Well, and you know, another piece. Well, I was just going to say Amazon is, you know, if you, if I don't know if you have the opportunity to read working backwards or any of the books, I mean, they've reasonably successfully figured out how to do what Deming prescribes. 
one of the really good, there's a, when I listened to that other podcast that I thought of a really good book, which is Free, Perfect, and Now by Ron Roden that uh, talked about eliminating sales commission and how it helped. There are also a couple of blog posts I've put on the Deming Institute blog. I'll include links to those. Um, But Free Perfect Now is really good. It's also a really good example of why this Deming stuff doesn't take off more. Okay. Um, So Ron Roden did a lot of really good stuff. He wrote that book. It's awesome. Um, And it, you know, it talked about a lot of the things that, people that know what they're talking about in Deming and getting rid of sales incentives will say can happen if you get rid of them. What happened? So they did really well. They're doing awesome. And you're investing in the long term. You're creating a really strong system. So what happened? They were bought out. What happened after they were bought out? All the new ideas were trashed and they went back to the old way of doing things, which is what constantly is happening. Um, Managing without sales quotas requires you to manage the system. And that's way harder than just telling, just giving people big bonuses if they can get sales. You know, that's not very hard to do. You hire people who are good salespeople, which great, that's a very, it's a very specific skill. And another thing is that some of it is just not that fun work. And so one way you make sure that they actually work all the time is you give them big incentives. Now, it's sort of funny. It's like you don't usually see people say that, well, garbage men aren't going to do their job because it's no fun. It's like you have to do your damn job. You can't just not go to 25% of your addresses because you don't yeah, feel yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But people are worried that that's what salespeople will do. Um, so you need to manage that whole system. And that's much harder to do. Yeah, no, I, I'm, yeah I'm glad. This is really a good, um, you know, again, sometimes you can read Dr. Deming and and like, you know, and not get it. And then like, even when I was learning some of the stuff, like I couldn't get system, system profound knowledge from, from new economics. I just couldn't get it out from there. I don't know why. And it actually took a bunch of healthcare um, blogs and videos that helped me really understand uh, particularly, um, you know, the psychology theory of psychology, but I, this was really helpful for me because you're right. At the end of the day, I fundamentally believe that you have to improve a system you know, sort of a, yeah, you know, and part global. of it is when you're giving, when you're making those people stars, besides them not then focusing on the system, it's all the other people, the people who are doing the customer service, the people. I mean, one of the things that really good salespeople are good at is they're good at dealing with external customers, but they're also really good at going around all the bottlenecks in your internal system, right? getting their clients special treatment because they're they're good at smoozing people. They're good at getting people to do stuff. stuff And the thing is you want that to happen. Now, what you want to happen is you want them to do that by improving the system. So when their customers are complaining that I need all my stuff immediately, what you really want is, okay, that's good feedback. Let's look at our overall system. How do we improve the system to make sure that your customer and all the other customers can get this? But what they usually do is they know they, you know, usually it's just, I mean, it's social engineering, but not in the way that, you know, people usually think about it. Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's just glad handing the person to convince them. Now, sometimes maybe they'll take them out to dinner. Or sometimes they'll even throw in little commissions of their own right. to people. But it's like, if you, what will happen, because there are a number of places that have done this. What will happen is you'll lose some of your good salespeople. Right, right. But you'll, the ones that you keep, 
are usually more interested in working on the overall system. And you also usually can reduce turnover a lot. Um, you can do things like give more money. This is one of the things that I personally believe in, though I see it less often. You can start spreading the wealth. So instead of just giving this star salesperson $250,000, and one of the things that they often are coping with is, well, this is actually a different example. But like, so I would know people like they graduate from college and they have big high powered jobs and they get paid right out of college, you know, $150,000, $200,000 a year. And they then have to rely on support staff that the company decides to pay $20,000 a year. And it's a nightmare. The people just are not that good. They're not very motivated for this teeny little salary. What they should do is pay those, pay the people you're recruiting a bit less, pay the people who are helping them out in their support staff a bit more. And you will then, it's going back to one of the things you said earlier, which is if you're mapping out your career, money that you're going to make matters. So it's not like that doesn't matter at all. But I want to work at a company that functions like Toyota instead of a dysfunctional company where I make a ton of money, but my life is living hell. In order to get my vacation approved, I have to jump through all sorts of hoops. Yeah, yeah. I remember, so I worked in the Secretary of Defense Quality Management Office. And one of the things we had happen was a general said, in order to buy a $50 coffee maker, mm-hmm. I need to get three levels of approval now that I'm in the Pentagon. Last week, well, you know, last quarter, I could launch a nuclear weapon on my say-so. Now I have to get three signatures to buy a $50 coffee pot. What in the the heck is wrong with you people? The disease of just about all um, sort of Western, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, it's funny because again, I like if you ask me a thousand times about the type of people I want to hire, like I'll always shoot for um in in terms of development infrastructure always say i'll take you know i'll take intrinsically motivated people every day every time and then for some reason when i was been hiring salespeople, i don't think that way and that's kind of it's so i guess i've just had a little bit of an aha moment so it's also it's 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 harder to find those sales. It is. It is. Especially in a startup, right? Where like you're right. literally coming out of the gate, like, you know, you've, you know, you need some people that can just, you know, sort of knock down big accounts, but yeah. Well, and it's the people that go into that. I mean, it's a self-selecting funnel mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. those people who you're, that are going to look at your sales position are going to be people that fell into that pattern of like, look, I just need to do whatever I can do to make sales. Um, and you know, I get paid a lot of money cause it's a skill that not that many people have. It's actually, I mean, it's now that software development salaries have gone up so much, right. it's pretty similar in that they're paid just a boatload of money now, good ones. Um, and, uh, you could get some of them who are very much of sort of that, uh, prima donna, I am God and I'm not going to follow your stupid ass subversion GitHub crap. I do it my way and get out of my way. Um, But it's like, that doesn't work. And it's like, if that's the way you want to be, yeah, we'll just have to find somebody else. Do you ever see, um, you know, we we can wrap up pretty soon, but like uh, Patty McCord, she was the chief talent officer at Netflix. And uh, it's a great, you you Google, I'll, I'll send you a link. It's really pretty awesome. You know, so they had this idea at Netflix, that, like this uh, Reed Hastings sort of uh, culture deck. It's it's reasonably famous. 
but she uh, she talked about um, they hired a guy from IBM because you know, they, they were very specific about how they hired the people. They, they wanted very intrinsically motivated. It, it, it was a culture of just like you've described very much. Right. And and so they hired this guy from IBM, big guy, like a fellow. Right. Comes in big shot at Netflix. And and he after about three, four five months, you know, Patty McCord said she invited him. She said she's the greatest um, firing person ever because she sat and looked and said, it's not working because he came in with the whole like it's kind of like you described like like he, I think he thought like he should have an in and out basket you know and, and that somebody was going to come fill it and he thought the people there was a team of people that are going to write his PowerPoint presentations and 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 big shot you know guy probably went off to another company made a ton of money but she said you know she just said like after three maybe five months she, she looked him in the eye and he said this ain't working, right? He's like, yeah. yeah. That that Netflix stuff. I mean, I remember, you know, what, 15 years ago, whatever, reading it. And it's just, this is awesome. Now, yeah. it's hard to make it actually work. Um, but they did really well. And they've done some really good stuff. I remember uh, just being really impressed with that model and what they were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is actually managing companies in that way is more difficult because you need to actually manage um, instead of just well, sort of growth, holding people yeah, right? accountable to this metric. It's growth. I've been with a fair amount of startups where I've seen it go from, you know, five people to, you know, a hundred people, you know, that's the, I've experienced the Dunbar effect, you know, all those things, you know, so that it's, uh, it's, it's sort of the growth, you know, uh, that, that, with like that stuff, just even the Dunbar um, number-ish that happens, like like the culture changes, and it's you know it's another way. It's you talk about a company getting acquired and losing everything. Uh, you have these sort of stages of growth in these companies that, like, it's almost the same effect. You know, you have this right. tearing off of. So, uh, well, man, we covered a lot of cool stuff. Um, yeah, it was great. So yeah, I, I knew it would be good. I like I said, I've been following you were one of the earliest blogs that I sort of stumbled. I, I guess the one last thing is I thought I got the quote from you, but I went all through your website and couldn't find it. But it it must have been your website that drove me this this I, there, this, this is quote about um and I'm probably gonna mangle it, but is the uh, you know, misunderstanding variation is the root of all evil. Is that something on your blog site or, and I just label it as anonymous, but. Uh, people have um, Deming say uh, something similar to uh, that. Um, if I don't believe that, um, if Deming said that, I don't believe it is really what he meant. So it's like, I, I believe it could be something that he said, but it's like misunderstanding variation creates all sorts of problems and uh, understanding variation helps a whole lot and solve all sorts of uh, issues that don't have to become big issues, but there's tons of other evil. There's some people who are just jerks. Oh, it's not the root of all evil. Okay, fair enough. Or anything else. Okay. So um, there's a great quote all. from Maslow okay. about okay. Uh, that sort of thing. I just, uh, I, yeah, no, I always get what you're saying because I'm saying like I, you know, you're right. It's not the quote unquote root, but 
But that idea that you re- react to special cores as if it's common cores, or you, ask, you react to common cores if it's special cores, right? Like, like you can't like yeah, fire everybody that, because a meteor hit the building, right? Like, or, right. But also, the thing that I find most important about that is we are constantly, we constantly make the more the most common thing is there is variation that doesn't mean anything. It's just common cause variation, but we believe it does mean something. And so we react to it. And so it's not just that that is a problem, but it is so common every single quarter. You can have that happen multiple times in the organization so that there are other things that are problems, but it's like, well, you know, it doesn't really happen that much. So who cares? But this is not understanding variation just happens constantly all the time. And people constantly react to it. And then because they don't understand variation, they, in their own mind, they see, oh, it changed. That was good. We made a difference because we yelled at those employees and now things aren't as bad. It's like, no, it just varied around. Your yelling had absolutely no effect other than to piss the people off. Well, that was, that was the thing that I finally, I, I finally decided to take like an operations research course on Coursera. And that's when I really understood that in, in sort of in process control or common cause, you want the um, the sort of the control points to be random. That's exactly the way the world works. As long as it's within some sort of upper or lower control limit or it's within a control process, it should be a random number. You know, it should be here, here, here. Like I, I use the, the the thermometer, right? Like if I wanted to be from 70 to 72 at all times, and I was to basically take 15-minute snapshots, I'd be, set, you know, somebody would open the door, it'd be 70 point, 70, you know, 1.5, it might be 70. It might all, and, and But if I noticed that it was sort of going up in a direction, even though it was within common cause, and that means maybe I should get ahead of the curve and realize that the air condition broke or it needs Freon, right? So I think a lot of people misunderstand where, you know, where like you know, certain people will say, well, process control is basically anomalies. You know, they say basically signal or noise. And like, yeah, no, not really because. Right. And especially that this is easier to see in manufacturing, which is one reason yeah, yeah. other people don't understand it. But the, the most important thing is usually to reduce variation. It's it just, it's very similar in software, but it's harder to judge because we all understand that it's going to vary a lot. Right. But like, if you normally have, let's say you do somewhat of a decent job of breaking software development into chunks that can be done. And let's say you break them into chunks that can be done in two weeks. If what happens is you break them into those chunks and sometimes it takes a week and sometimes it takes six months and it just varies all over the place. What you then have is, okay, we have this variation within this uh, thing that's random between one week and six months. Like that's not good enough for us to operate. We can't make executive decisions. We can't. So what we need to do is we need to figure out how we can adjust this system to uh, be to have the variation be lower. And really what it, I mean, it's in that specific example, what it pretty much always comes down to is doing a better job of assessing the scope of the project beforehand. So often the reason why they're so 
uh, inaccurate is because they didn't get a decent idea of what it is. Now, I think the best way to deal with this is Agile's sort of idea of, well, we don't, we're not going to worry about that. You give it, you know, we'll rank the things we have to do. We'll do them in order. If, you know, during this, we can re-rank things or whatever. But don't be focused on when are we going to deliver this 26 feature batch. Focus on delivering things as soon as they're ready and having them done. And if we need to do something like meet a target in three months, well, what is the minimum viable, what's the minimum piece we need for that? We'll do those first and then we'll add on the little pieces as we go. And that's a different way of dealing with a system problem of if we try to just say, well, here's this big, huge project. Is it going to be done in six months? Right. You don't know. Well, but I think that like, to, and I would definitely have to wind it down here pretty soon because yeah. I have a feeling that, um, the Zoom will cut me off at some point. Yeah, sure. But but here, but I do want to make a point, which is that I think the problem we have in software development in general is we don't really do uh, the sort of that variance or statistics of variance. Because um, there's a, a woman, uh, Dominica Diagrandis, right? She created this game called the DevOps Kanban game. And the way we used to run it at, at, at DevOps conferences, and you get three teams um, and they all have a, this board and it, it's a board and you use dice to do the randomness and, and one team is assigned um, by um, revenue. And, and you do like, uh, you do sort of a, a day five to day 14. I can't remember exactly right. So it's just sort of every day you have a stand up and, you know, Joe quits. So you have to sort of move. Anyway, it's, it, it sort of emulates software delivery. Right. And, uh, and basically one team is assigned, like the goal is for revenue. Second team is amount of stories. And the third team is, uh, variation. Every time we did that game, variation one. I mean, just I, I was joked that if we could have extended out like five more days, it would have won by a mile. And and it's hard because even the people that are on my team, I'll always take variation as my the team I did. They'd be like, "We got to do revenue. Let's move this story over." I'm like, "No, no, no. Stay strong. Stay strong. You, you create like a cum chart, and you basically." So again, I, I just don't think we do that enough in software development. Yeah, and I think it, a whole bunch of it goes back to the bigger management issue of how the organization is managed. So that the problem, it's challenging to get people to change no matter what. But the problem that I see is, I mean, it's a very, the agile concept of, you know, give me the things you want in order and I'll deliver them in order is very simple and it's very sensible. I mean, I, it's hard to come up with good arguments against it, in my opinion. But because the management systems are so screwed up, often we can't even get that done. What I see a lot of times is the people who should be able to prioritize things really can't. And it is instead of saying, look, this is your job. You have to figure out how to do this. In, In an organization I was in for a long time, what I ended up doing, even though I was in the software development piece, um, I essentially acted as the product owner making those decisions for them because they couldn't do it. And then I would talk to them as much as possible to get them to give me, you know, their less specific uh, ideas of what the priorities were and where things had to be done. And I just had to make those judgments myself. It wasn't perfect because they'd get mad at me sometimes for not getting the thing done they wanted, but it really did work 
very well. Just, you know, people can complain about everything. But in most organizations, that would never be allowed to happen. That, right. you know, this yeah, is yeah. a small yeah. organization. Yeah, so I didn't have somebody like you with sort of the, that sort of view, the systems thinking, the sort of the, all those combinations. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, hopefully it's been fun for you too, but. Um, yes, it was. We should do this again. Um, any, um, we'll definitely put links all over the place. I love the fact that uh, you know I'm trying to expand my audience too, because all, all my audience are like DevOps people, right? Right. And so this will be great for me for at least to sort of see some of my other blogs, you know, the or yeah. podcasts that I've done with like the Hawthorne guy with Doris Quinn, and and then some of the people that probably follow you that like want to know though. Hey, by the way, this stuff's happening at Amazon. It's like happening at. Uh, you know, so that's kind of cool. So, uh, so yeah, the yeah. curious cat is. Uh, I think you know, that people should definitely. Yeah, definitely. And then I, uh, I have a johnhunter.com okay. website that has thing that has sort of ties everything I'm doing together, cool. and has like links to me elsewhere on the web. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, sir. This was uh, again, sure. a lot of fun, and uh, and definitely, you know. We'll get some breathing room, but I'm definitely going to poke you down the road again, maybe try to do this again. So, Yeah, sounds great. I enjoyed it, and I will look forward to doing it again. All right, thanks. Cool.